Hey there, my name is Austin Fast, and welcome to Coronavirus in Florida, The Lost Summer, a podcast from the Tampa Bay Times. This episode was released on Thursday, July 9th. On this show, we'll explore all the ways COVID-19 is making summer 2020 one to remember. We'll share the facts behind the spread of the virus and discuss what could happen next. Exactly four months ago, we aired our first episode during that bizarre second week of March when life ground to a halt. Just 18 people had tested positive across Florida by March 9th. Today, July 9th, that number passed over 225,000 cases. So what have we learned since March? We've learned that we don't know a lot about it. Almost every week we learn something new and that the new information is generally not good news for us. That's Jay Wolfson, a professor at the University of South Florida's College of Public Health. Tampa Bay Times reporter Allison Ross spoke with him and several other experts this week to see how far our understanding of the virus has come in four short months. On today's episode, aerosol. It's not just for hairspray anymore. Over 200 scientists sent a letter to the World Health Organization on Monday calling for more guidance around aerosol transmission of coronavirus. Our reporter Allison Ross breaks down what in the world scientists mean by that. She also describes new symptoms and possible long-term effects she learned about while reporting Wednesday's front-page story in the Tampa Bay Times. Hi, I'm Allison Ross, and I'm the state accountability reporter for the Tampa Bay Times. For the past few months, like many other reporters, I've been working on some stories about the coronavirus pandemic, looking at how it's spreading and how it's affecting Floridians, among other things. It's now been four months since the middle of March when this really came to the forefront of our national attention. What's changed significantly from when we first started dealing with coronavirus? Things are not settled yet. We still don't have a good sense of a lot of things. In fact, I think there were more things that I came away with in my list of what we don't know uh, than things we do know. But as we've seen more people with the illness, some of the things we've learned in particular is who might be at higher risk for the illness. So that has changed. I think early guidance really focused on older people who would be more at risk for severe illness. And that's still true, but the CDC has changed its guidance to talk about less about a threshold of over 65 years old and more about how as you get older, your risk goes up. And they've also identified other issues that could increase your risk for having a severe illness from contracting the virus, things like type 2 diabetes, potentially having asthma, obesity, it seems to be a big one chronic kidney disease, serious heart conditions. Right. So it's not just older people who are primarily at risk anymore, but really anyone who might have some sort of underlying condition, even if that person is in their 20s. The second point you mentioned in your article is how the virus presents a wider range of symptoms than we originally thought. Can you take us through what the experts told you about symptoms? Back when we were first hearing about the coronavirus and we were seeing some of the first few cases pop up, a lot of the focus was on fever, shortness of breath, coughing, the kinds of things that you would expect with a respiratory illness. But quickly we started seeing people with more symptoms. And so uh, muscle pain, headache, sore throat, a sudden loss of taste or smell. We've seen that in some people who have gotten the coronavirus. Gastrointestinal issues as well, like nausea, diarrhea, vomiting. Dr. Sally Alraba with the University of South Florida was telling me because of, uh, of the way that the coronavirus can get into the lining of the blood cells, it can circulate through the brain and, and that can cause things like confusion or hallucinations. 
So I think we're still figuring it out. It does seem, at least according to what Dr. Alraba told me, that the virus is not really attacking brain cells. So that's at least one good thing. That's a good point. When Dr. Wolfson mentioned at the very start, he said, we don't know a lot, but every week we get news and it's usually not good news. And I'm like, oh my God, like this is so depressing. And so it is good to hear a few good points like that here and there. One bit of good news that you reported is that the risk of getting infected from surfaces isn't as high as was initially feared. Can you tell me a little bit about what you learned from the experts you talked with about surface transmission? So yeah, this is called fomite transmission, F-O-M-I-T-E. And I'm saying that as a person who did not do very well in science class. So... But yeah, it's this idea that, you know, when an infected person uh, maybe coughs or sneezes, droplets come out and they land on the table or something else or a doorknob uh, and that other people could touch it and then get the disease. Let's play now a bit of your interview with epidemiologist Tara Smith of Kent State University in Ohio to hear what we've learned about surface transmission since March. That mode of transmission does not seem to be playing a big role as far as we can tell. I wouldn't ease up on, you know, hand-washing or anything like that, but touching those surfaces doesn't seem to be a big driver of transmission. So that's one thing that, that I think has come out of the research over the last three or four months. That's interesting. And it, does it matter, like, if I go to the playground with my kid by myself, then we're probably okay? Or is it still, like, mm, don't do that? <laughs> I would still wipe off things, um, both before and after, but... You know, I do that anyway. <laughs> There's other things that they can catch also besides coronavirus. So I, you know, I would definitely recommend a good hand washing or hand sanitizer or something afterward, after you're touching a lot of those surfaces. But I think it, it can give some peace of mind that those things maybe aren't as risky as we had initially thought. At the same time that you were discussing that with these experts, you were talking about this aerosol transmission, has, which has been a big discussion in the news. I've, I've heard in national headlines all this talk about aerosol transmission of the virus. What is this and, and should we be worried about it? So this is not really a brand new finding. Um, I, I think I want to start with that. It's this idea that in addition to those larger droplets that may come out when you, when you sneeze or cough, that there's the, the smaller size droplets that are called aerosols. They're, they're much smaller and then they can float in the air um, a lot longer, um, you know, so they can stay in the air rather than quickly falling to surfaces. Where it becomes kind of messy is that there's no clear distinction between aerosol and droplets. Okay, all of it is really a continuum so that, you know, when you cough or sneeze or, or even breathe, you put out particles of different sizes, right? Mm -hmm. So the question is, that, you know, can it do that? But it's really how important is that for the transmission? Mm -hmm. And from what we have seen, both in the communities and even in hospitals, aerosol doesn't seem to be the main form of transmission of the virus. Okay? okay. So yeah, in some ways it's kind of a false dichotomy. You know, it's not droplet or aerosol, it's probably droplet and aerosol, but which is most important? And most of the research has seen that droplet is more important, mm -hmm. but we can't also rule out aerosol because that can happen sometimes. And maybe it's responsible for some of these events where we see like super spreaders. You see one person who is infected, but they infect like 20 others or 50 others or something. Allison, let's go back to your interview with Al Raba, that infectious disease researcher from USF. We've seen experts go back and forth since March over whether or not the general public needs to wear masks, and she doesn't mince words. Masks work. It prevents this droplet transmission, but also this airborne or aerosolization. That's where the mask will be also quite helpful. 
So we knew from the beginning that if someone is coughing or sick, if they wear a mask, they reduce spread. Everybody was on board. If you're sick, just wear a mask. The question was, what if you're not sick? Many studies now have shown that if you wear a mask and if you're even by someone who's sick, then it's less likely that you get the disease. That's a big plus, right? It reduces it even further from people catching the illness. And the other good part of it that if you have the virus and you don't feel it, then if you put a mask, then you don't give it to someone who may die from it. So both ways, it works well. So really, 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 that is something five times better than the drugs. I'm curious about whether we're getting a better sense of longer term effects. I mean, I say longer knowing that this has only been around mm-hmm. six months, but it, it seems like we're getting a better sense that there may be some longer term effects for some people. After the acute phase of the illness passes for the 14 to 21 days from initial exposure, some percentage of all people who are positive, even asymptomatic, will acquire a new disease that they've never had before. And it may be a cardiovascular disease, a lung disease, or a kidney disease. And they may have that for life. That's something new. Do we have any sense of how many people have that issue? No, we're learning it from from what's happening in China and Europe, and a few cases here. And again, we've only been exposed to measurement about this disease for less than six months. We don't have enough historical data to tell us what happens to people who've had the disease three months, six months, nine months, a year afterwards. For many illnesses, especially for many viral illnesses, there can be longer-term effects that aren't measurable until sometime in the future. But a percentage, some small percentage, we're not sure what it is, but it's clearly there, are acquiring these new diseases. So that was Jay Wolfson again, that healthcare policy expert from the University of South Florida, whom we heard from at the start of the show. Allison, I was wondering about how you handle it as you're going from the interview to writing a story about this. A lot of the answers that you got, it's it's just like, well, we don't really know. We don't have a definitive yes or no answer. And that's kind of hard for, you know, a reader wants to know the answer. You know, are aerosols spreading it? Can I go to the playground? Should I wear a mask? I'll, and, well, actually, no, the mask one is, a, I think, a definitive yes, um, Dr. Alrava said. But for those things where they're still uncertain, how do you, as a journalist, kind of handle the squishiness around the uncertainties? I think it's important for us as reporters to tell people what we do know and also what we don't know and to be transparent about where we're at. And and I have absolutely, after writing this story, gotten some emails from people wanting to know why I didn't include, you know, this fact or that fact. Certainly, I'm sure there are many facts that I didn't, you know, get into my story. But a lot of things that people were asking about were things that aren't settled yet, that we are still trying to figure out and understand. But I think transparency is is important about what we do and don't know. All of this is is quite new to me. I don't have a a background in science, so I'm learning along with everybody else on this. And I really appreciate experts who are taking the time to speak with reporters and speak to the public and try to lay out what can be pretty complex information in a way that people can understand. Well, thank you so much, Allison, for, for taking the time to talk with us today. We really appreciate it. That was Allison Ross sharing what she learned while reporting her article from the July 8th edition of the Tampa Bay Times. If you missed her story in the newspaper, you can head to tampabay.com slash coronavirus to catch up. And while you're on our website, you'll also find up-to-the-minute data and all the Tampa Bay Times stories about coronavirus in Florida. 
If you like today's show, please subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast platform. I'd love to hear from you if you have comments or suggestions for future episodes we can look into. You can find me on Twitter at A underscore fast. That's fast, like the opposite of slow. Or you can shoot me an email at afast at tampabay.com. Thanks again to Allison Ross for sharing her interviews with the experts. They were Sally Alraba and Jay Wolfson of the University of South Florida, as well as Tara Smith of Kent State University. I'm Austin Fast, and you've been listening to Coronavirus in Florida. Thanks for tuning in and stay healthy out there.